This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Have a rather long, long passage this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. If you would, I would love for you to stand with me, and I will read this together for us. So beginning with, you can stand together, beginning with verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read all the way down through chapter 2 and verse 5. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of this world, which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, of whom God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Then God gives us a picture of what that looks like in the church. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith 
should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word. You may be seated. The seed thought for the exchange was born in 2001 when I took a mission trip to Singapore and uh, uh, John Van Gelderen and I uh, did training in evangelism and discipleship in a church in Singapore. With me came an intern from our church, a travel agent, a recovering alcoholic, an engineer, and a financial uh, advisor. These six men, including me, um, trained in the daytime, and then in the evening, we went out into the community and began to have gospel conversations. It was the prayer of each one of these men that they would each lead someone to Christ that particular week. They, they didn't want to, to go to that expense and that uh, uh, um, uh, difficulty to, to go clear across the ocean and not see God work. It was interesting to watch those in the mornings we would meet as a team and have prayer meeting. And it was interesting as those prayers uh, began to become more and more and more intense as some of those men were very burdened to lead someone to Christ and yet had not done so. It is interesting that at the end of that week, that little church exploded from about 200 people to about 2,000 people in the next couple of years. And what I saw on that trip was the power of the gospel and what the gospel will accomplish through ordinary people. And in fact, it was my desire at that point and, and, and that burden began to grow until 2010. Anna and I felt compelled that we need to leave our church. This is a church that we started. Uh, we pastored her for 26 years. It was not a place that was easy to leave. Anybody who has pastored knows that uh, uh, it, it literally tears at the fabric uh, to, 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 to leave a place like that and to walk away. Uh, but we felt compelled that this gospel is so powerful in the hands of lay people, in the hands of ordinary people. And that's what I want to talk to us about today from this passage is the power of the gospel. The title of the message is We Preach Christ. And uh, we're going to see three things in this passage. Number one, we're going to see that uh, uh, Christ sent us to preach the gospel. And then secondly, we're going to see that Christ chose us for his glory. And then lastly, we're going to see this picture that God provided for us of a powerful model of what that looks like in our local church. Number one, Christ sent us to preach the gospel. And this is the longest section of the message, so if it seems like I'm taking a long time on this portion, don't fret, because the rest of it goes a little faster. But in verse 17, we're going to see six things that the gospel is not. Six things that the gospel is not. Number one, the gospel is not human engineered. Notice he says, Christ sent me. Frankly, man could never have conceived of the remedy of salvation 
because without the Holy Spirit, man could never understand the full depravity of our own nature, and no human could have ever conceived of such a wonderful uh, uh, solution, that God himself would condescend to our great need and die the terrible death that you and I deserve and, and do that in exchange for us so that we might be able to have his righteousness. And here's what I want you to know. Because man did not call us, it is not to men that we are responsible, but to God himself. So it is not human engineered. Number two, the gospel is not religious activity. Notice he says, Christ sent me not to baptize. Now, absolutely, you guys have experienced recently uh, multiple adults trusting Christ and being baptized baptized. Baptism is an awesome event. We love to baptize, but no amount of religious activity will ever rescue a lost soul. And frankly, giving the gospel is not simply my religious duty, which I think sometimes we tend to think of it that way. And I will also tell you this, that though inviting people to come to church is one of the kindest things that you can do as another fellow human, it is probably not the most effective way to reach souls. They need the gospel. And number two, it is not what we are called to do. So number two, the gospel is not religious activity. Number three, the gospel is not a negative message. The Bible tells us, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, that phrase, to preach the gospel, is actually a translation of one word in the original language. And uh, if we were going to translate it with one word, we would translate it with the word gospelizer. God called me to be a gospelizer. And the word literally means one who is sharing good news. Now, you and I know that most people will never understand the good news of the gospel until they have understood the bad news that they are sinners apart from Jesus Christ. But frankly, it is not the bad news God sent us to give. It is the good news God sent us to give. And that's what we ought to be excited about. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little nervous about confronting people with their sin. But here's what we need to recognize. That's not what God called us to do. What God called us to do is proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has come to rescue us. Number four, the gospel is not human logic or persuasion. He says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. Now, we're going to work this week at learning how to give the gospel in a clear, compelling, concise, and as the pastor used the word, effective. It doesn't have a C, so you can't really put that in there well but effective way of giving the gospel. We want to be able to to help you to feel comfortable and confident that I know the gospel well and I can articulate it effectively. Having said that, the gospel is not about smooth presentations and impeccable logic. It's not about crafting the message. 
It's about giving the message. And so the gospel is not human logic or persuasion. Number five, the gospel is not a crossless message. Notice he goes on to say, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And uh, have you ever heard anyone say something like this? Well, yeah, I know I've sinned, but, but God will forgive me. And it's, it's almost, uh, uh, it, it almost is them saying, God will overlook it. And I want you to know something. God, in all of his power, cannot simply forgive sin. Because the Bible tells us that God is holy, can't tolerate any sin, can't, can't remain in his presence. That God is just. He literally must condemn every single sin. So God cannot simply forgive sin. It took the cross. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve, and without the cross, there is no gospel. And so the gospel is not a crossless message. And then the last thing that we see here, the gospel is not an empty message. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Had a friend from college call me uh, um, several years ago now, uh, but it was several years after I'd been out of college. hadn't talked to this friend for a long time. And he said, Jeff, I just discovered that my cousin is in hospice in a hospice facility not far from your church. Could you please go see him? And I said, absolutely. At, uh, where, where is he? And I got the information. He says, hurry, because he's, he's about to, to die. And so I drove. I got in my car that moment and drove straight to the hospice center. It was probably only about five minutes away from our church. And when I got there, his cousin was already in eternity. And I found the most bizarre setting that I have ever seen. This man was still laying in the hospital bed outside underneath of a gazebo. And there were about 17 to 20 uh, young 20-something people, because it was a young man that had just uh, died, and they were, they were around this bed in a, in a circle, and they all had paper cups of what they informed me was his favorite and most expensive liquor. And they were toasting this man. And they were saying words like, no, he's in a better place. And, and he's up there right now, swishing down the mountains. And frankly, friends, they were saying words that they did not believe and that they would not use again until the next time they came into an uncomfortable setting. And those were, and you know it, empty words. And I want you to know something. The gospel is not empty words. The gospel is real hope. The gospel literally transforms the people that, it embrace, that embrace it. And you and I can see the power of the gospel in transform lives. So those are the six things that the gospel is not. Now we want to look at six things the gospel is. We'll see this in verses 18 through verse 25. And the Bible tells us, number one, that the gospel is the message of the cross. 
it uses this phrase in verse uh, uh, 18. It says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that uh, uh, perish foolishness. And that word preaching, uh, you, I, you probably don't, I, I, I don't know a lot of Greek, but there is a couple of Greek words that I think all of us know. And this word preaching is actually the Greek word lagos. It's translated word. Uh, in fact, it's the same word that is used of Jesus Christ when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is the same word here, and it is the message. It is not just a single word, but a message, and literally what he's saying is, the gospel is the message of the cross. And, and I, I actually believe there's something more here than just when we talk about the gospel, we have to talk about the cross. In fact, what I would like to suggest is that a, the picture of the cross speaks to us. That when we look at what happened on the cross, it preaches a message to us. Because on the cross, we see a demonstration of God's holiness like we've never seen it before when Jesus Christ called and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in eternity, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And there was separation between the two of them because in God's holiness, he could not look upon my sin as Jesus bore my sin on the cross. So the, the gospel gives us an amazing picture of God's holiness. The gospel also demonstrates God's justice. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Jesus did not come to earth just to give us a good example. Jesus didn't come just to suffer. Jesus had to die because he died the death I deserve. And the Bible teaches us that in God's justice, he cannot overlook sin, that he has to judge it. And Jesus Christ bore that judgment for me. And so the gospel preaches to us the justice of God. But praise the Lord, friend. The gospel preaches the message of God's love. I think probably all of us have favorite verses, but how could we not have this verse as our favorite? But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world. I love this verse. The Bible tells us that God uh, literally stretched out his arms toward us with love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the Bible teaches us that the, gospel, that the cross literally cries to us of the love of God. And then lastly, the, the, the cross preaches and displays God's beautiful grace. The Bible tells us not only that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God literally says to us that he extends that grace 
Titus chapter 3, to all men. That grace is reaching out to all of us. So the gospel is the message of the cross. Number two, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. In verse 18, it says that the gospel is uh, uh, to those that perish, foolishness. I just want you to know, we talked about this yesterday for those of you who are here, that the Bible teaches us that there are more people that are going to reject the gospel than are going to embrace the gospel. And the Bible teaches us that wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go thereat. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that go thereat. I don't know if you've ever heard this statistic before, but George Barna, in a survey, discovered that nine out of ten believers who tried to share their faith feel like they failed and decided to invest their time in something more satisfying and in something they were more likely to achieve success. And literally what we all have discovered is that when we first get saved and we're so excited about it, we want everybody to know about it, all of our friends say, shut up, leave me alone. And I'm afraid that many of us are like these who took that survey and we've decided let's put our energies into something we can be a little more successful at. And I want you to be aware of that God warned us that we should expect many people to react negatively to the good news and that some would respond positively to the good news. So number one, the gospel is the message of God or the message of the cross. Number two, the gospel is foolishness uh, to those who are perishing. But number three, and this is the good news, the gospel is the power of God. Unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In in the uh, uh, grammar that you find in this passage, it literally is saying to us, to those who are perishing, it is foolishness. And to those who are being saved, It is the power of God. I just want you to be aware of the fact, friend, that God is still in the saving business. He is on the move, so to speak. And right this moment, he is calling people to himself. So here's the question. How do you find out who God is calling to himself and who is, is not going to respond? And the answer is you give him the gospel. The the way to find out who God is working in is you give them the gospel. If they respond, we know that's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing them. Charles Spurgeon said this, until God gives me the roll call of the elect, I'm going to preach the whosoever will gospel. That's the gospel we preach today. And so the Bible tells us the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to all all who believe. I want you to believe this. this if, if I accomplish anything in this message, I want you to hear this and believe it, that if we give the gospel to enough people, some people are going to be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22. Paul said, I, ha- I 
and made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, I would love for that word to say all. I mean, just add one more all in there. But frankly, we have to be honest with ourselves. That's not what it says. But what it does say, that if you and I will live that all in life, we will see some saved. Can I just ask you a really personal question? Do you believe that if you became all things to all men, by all means, that you would see some saved? Do you believe that? So here's what I want us to envision. Let's just take that down to one person. And let's imagine every single person in this room living that all-in life. And all of us seeing one person come to Christ. Could you imagine the difference it would make in this church? Now, I know you have some great disciple makers in this church. But I know this. God's plan is for every single one of us to become disciple makers. And, and frankly, I, I actually think that you probably ought to stop thinking about all of the people you could lead to Christ and ask God for one. Because if every single one of us were serious about finding our one, our church would thrive. And here's what I want you to know. God has a plan for all churches to thrive. And his plan is us, God's people. And so we see that the gospel is the power of God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the power of the gospel. And then number four, the gospel is the wisdom of God. And this is uh, found in uh, verses 19 uh, through 21. And the Bible tells us that here uh, um, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And I believe that we need to believe that where there seems to be no way, God will make a way. No human wisdom could have ever conceived such a marvelous plan. God's holiness and our sins separated us. There was no way to cross the chasm between us. But in the wisdom of God, he became man. And he lived a perfect life that you and I could never have lived, died in our place, taking our sin on himself, and then defeated that penalty of death through resurrection. That's the wisdom of God. And God not only provided the gospel through his wisdom, but he is now currently wooing individuals to himself through his matchless wisdom. And frankly, friends, God is inviting us through his grace to join him in this great work of rescuing people. And number five, we see that the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the person of the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, we preach Christ 
crucified. Unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the word Christ here is the word Messiah. And notice he uses this phrase, we preach Christ crucified. What the Greeks wanted was a philosopher. What the Jews wanted was a victorious sign giver. And instead, God sent them a suffering Savior. We know that the word Messiah is talking about being anointed and anointing. And the Messiah is now calling those he will. He's calling both the Jews and the Greeks, verse 24a. And he's calling, and we can trust him to use us effectively in that calling process. Notice it says... Christ, the power of God. And literally what he's saying is, Christ is God's power personified. He is not saying that Christ is powerful. He's saying that Christ is the power of God. And you can imagine the last enemy, death, was defeated by the power of God in Christ. And then it says Christ is the wisdom of God personified. Not only is Christ the wisest man ever to live, he literally is the wisdom of God. And here's what I want you to believe. Christ is what he is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the power of God and the wisdom of God resides in you through the spirit of Christ and you can be confident that Christ in you will give you the wisdom that you need to do the work he calls you to. And the last thing, this is not the last, last thing, this is the last thing of the six. The last thing that we want to see here is that the gospel is the exceeding excellence of God. In verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Have you ever thought about how foolish it was for God to take on the frailty of human flesh and to come down to earth and literally to take man on on his own turf? And we see the wise men coming to God and trying to trick him with questions. And every single time he outwitted every reviler and silenced them. That, my friend, is the fact that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And you talk about the epitome of weakness. You look at Jesus Christ on the cross totally powerless, not even able to complete a breath. And in the weakness of his human body, dying. But the weakness of God is stronger than men and death could not hold its prey. He tore the bars away. And the fact is, friends, that you and I can be confident that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is about the exceeding excellence of our God. You probably know the story of Voltaire. 
Voltaire in 1764 wrote in his book, The uh, Philosophical Dictionary, we are living in the twilight of Christianity. In 1776, the same year the United States became a nation, he predicted 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In 1778, he died. And 16 years after his death, the very printing press that Voltaire used to print his irreverent works was being used to print editions of the Bible. And in fact, they were being printed on paper that was especially made for a superior version of Voltaire's works. God has a sense of humor. 58 years after his death, his home in Geneva, Switzerland was being used as a warehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts. And I want you to know that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These next two points will go very quickly. I want you to look at verses 26 to 27 and we're going to see something. Christ chose us. Uh, and I, this is, I, I hope you understand how powerful this is. He didn't choose us because we're so good. He actually chose us because we're not so good for his glory. So notice these words that we see in the scripture. For you see, that's in verse 26. So I just want you to look around the room for a moment. And I want you to see that not many wise men, not many mighty men, not many noble men are called. That's my experience. Is that your experience? I mean, I've just seen it over and over and over. Here's the cool thing. Here is our privilege. In verse 27 and 28, we see these words, your calling, brethren, God has chosen. And another time he says, God has chosen. And I just want you to know that God called you. Literally, you would not be here this morning if God wasn't calling you. God called you. What a privilege, friend. What, what a pri we always say what a privilege it is to be in the house of God. And literally, it is a privilege because God has called us. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, I love this passage of Scripture. It talks about, I am praying that the eyes of, the, of your human understanding would be opened. In other words, these are things that we tend to be blind to. And one of the things that we're supposed to have our eyes open to is what is called the hope of his calling. Sometimes it's almost like uh, as, as we preach, we're going to have a missions conference here in a couple of uh, weeks, and we, we preach, and it's like we're ducking. I, I hope God doesn't call me to the mission field, you know. And the fact is that the calling of God on our life is literally the greatest hope that any of us ever have. And here's what I want you to know. You don't have to go to the mission field to be called. You are called right where you are. Where you live is your mission field. And then notice our place, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The reason God chooses us who are foolish and us who are weak is because he is seen 
and he is who the world needs. And then we see in verse 30, this is probably one of my favorite verses in this passage, our life. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. So literally, it is Jesus who is all of these things we're getting ready to see. But he is in us, and he's been made that to us so that we become these words. He is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those words apply to me. They apply to you. And in fact, I call this the Christ life. This is not my life. This is his life in me. My wife's favorite passage of scripture is Colossians chapter 3 and in verses 3 and 4. It says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says it this way, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And it is the life of Christ that God wants us to live. And in verse 31, we see our glory that according as it is written, he that glories let him glory in the Lord. And I don't know what you're coming here this morning with, but I promise you every one of us have trouble. Every one of us have problems. But we need not focus on our problems. What we need to do is focus on the Lord and his goodness to us, his glory in our life. That's what God wants us to focus on. And then quickly, we'll just look at this picture that God gave us of what does all of this look like in our local church. Number one, Paul had, in verse five, verse 1 of chapter 2, a fixed approach. He had a strategy that he used in every church that he went, or every city that he went to. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And this uh, uh, phrase where it says excellency of speech, it's literally meaning I didn't come to you in superior speech. And then he says, my dependence was only on declaring the testimony of God. That was his approach. That was, he always preached the gospel. He knew the gospel was what was going to meet people's needs. Number two, we see his focus. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul did not think it fit or his business to know anything except Jesus Christ, the person and the office of the Son of God, and this one, literally those words, this one crucified. He relied only on the message of the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of opinions about vaccines. I have a lot of opinions about elections. I have a lot of opinions about democracy. But I have determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm just telling you, you can fix all the election problems in this world. And it will not solve the eternal need of men's souls. Paul's focus was, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then we see Paul's frailty. I was among you in weakness and in fear 
and in much trembling. If you read in history where Paul was in his life, he had been imprisoned in Philippi, driven out of Thessalonica and Berea, laughed out of Athens, and he came to Corinth frail and fearful. Does that sound a little bit like you? Certainly sounds a little bit like me. A.T. Robertson calls it a common feeling of the most effective preachers. I actually think it is appropriate for me never to feel comfortable in someone else's pulpit because I can't do it. I could never do anything that would really genuinely help, but I have Christ. He wants me to recognize my own frailty because, notice in verse 4, I call this Paul's fragrance. Uh, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians that talks about the fact that, that the power of God, the Spirit of God is like the fragrance of Christ. I love the word fragrance because it's an invisible aura that is genuinely sensed, but we don't actually see it. We, it, it impacts us. And so that's the way the Spirit of God works in our lives. We don't see it. We don't actually uh, uh, put our finger on it, but we know it when it's there. Does that make sense? And that's what he's talking about. He says, my speech and my preaching was not of enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Even though Paul was literally railroaded and laughed out of town, he came into Corinth and preached the exact same thing here that he had in those places that got him in trouble. And in doing so, God displayed the power of his spirit's work in transforming the lives of converts. And frankly, friends, God wants you and he wants me to know Christ so intimately, personally, that we have the ability to show him effectively through our life, living that fragrance, and then, and then speak him boldly into people's lives. So it's not until we have lived it and demonstrated it that we have the ability to speak it boldly. And then the last thing I want you to, oh, I did, I wanted to, I, this is, I think this is important, and I almost left it out. I, I want us to recognize that discipling people to Christ sometimes takes a process, and we're going to talk about the fact that, that people don't always get saved the first time they hear the gospel, and they need more than one touch with the gospel. I don't want us to ever lose this reality, though, and that is the conversion of a soul is a powerful, miraculous, instantaneous work of God's Holy Spirit. And literally, one moment a person is dead in trespasses and sins, and the next minute they are made alive again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One minute they are in the kingdom of darkness, and the next second they are translated into the kingdom of light. And that happens as a miracle in an instant by the work of the Holy Spirit through their making a choice of faith. And that's the last point that we want to make here, and that is our goal, in being gospel givers is our convert's faith. That your faith, verse 5, should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So three things we see in this verse. Number one, faith is our goal. Sharing the gospel is our method. 
And the power of God is our confidence. So listen, it's not about if I do it just the right way because the gospel is powerful and we can count on that. So we just need to remember what we are aiming at is that that person would place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the way we get that accomplished is by giving them the gospel. The gospel is the key ingredient to seeing converts and the power of God is our confidence because it's what's going to make a difference. No wonder, Paul said, it is the preaching of the cross that to them that perish is foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it is the power of God. No wonder he said it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I have three questions that I'd like to end with this morning. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not actually even going to have a raise of hands. I want you to just look at me, and I want you to answer these questions in your own heart. The first question is this. Would you be willing to say, God has stirred my heart this morning, and I want to admit, I haven't been the witness that I should be. I want to confess it today before the Lord. And I want to ask God to help me share the gospel with someone before the end of this calendar year, 2023. Question number two. This is for those of you who are taking our course Remember that resolve that we made. I resolve to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need and if possible meet it. I wonder today, are you willing to say, I want to make that my life's resolve? I want to determine in my heart that I will direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need and if possible meet it. And then number three, I wonder who in this room would be willing to say, I am not sure I'm on my way to heaven. I've heard these things. I, I, I know them, but I'm not 100% sure I'm on my way to heaven. I am not sure about my relationship with God, but I want to be sure. And I would just encourage you today you find someone in this room, I guarantee you there's a bunch of people in here who'd love to help you. And that before you leave this place, you get that settled today. Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that that work would work in us through your word and that you would do great things in our lives even this hour. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.